0: Here your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey,
1: everyone, welcome back to the 43rd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? Good, good. Having a good morning so far. Um, Another busy week of news headlines and things going on in the world, so there's no shortage of information to share with people, that's for sure. (laughs) Definitely not that issue. (laughs) Uh, So we'll kick it off like we always do with the uh, performance of the major indexes that we track for the month and the year. And these numbers are as of the market close on April 15th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 7.69% for the month and down 13.76% for the year. The Dow up 7.24% for the month, down 17.5% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index up 9% for the month and down 6.46% for the year, which is kind of crazy to see how that's only down 6.5% for the year uh, as of last night, but nasdaq's come back strong yeah the iwm etf that tracks the russell 2000 index up 2.92 percent for the month and down 28.89 percent for the year so that performance difference small caps really really underperforming uh the vanguard international etf x united states is up 3.1 percent for the month and down 22.32 percent for the year um so again um you know the dispersion of returns has been pretty wide in terms of small caps and international. Uh, The three-month T-bill yielding 0.14%, the two-year treasury yielding 0.2%, and the 10-year treasury yield sitting at 0.62%. So I think the major headline over the past week, Matt, was that Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the U.S. agreed to major oil production cuts um, after demand kind of dropped off a cliff because of COVID-19, and I think the cuts were around 10% or something like that. So can you kind of dig into this a
2: little bit and just kind of go over what this means for people and what the significance of this is? Absolutely, Mark. I think over the past several months, and I would even say a couple of quarters, we've had oversupply of oil in the world. And what that has caused in the basic supply-demand matrix is prices have really, really cratered. And then you take on top of that, the uh, quarantine around the world, you have a lot less consumption of oil in its byproducts, jet a fuel for airplanes, gasoline, diesel fuel. So you just have a glut of supply. And these managers, I'm sorry, these drillers still have to pay their bills. So how do they pay their bills? They got to drill for even more oil to make that happen. Right. So what you're actually probably going to see here in the U.S., is the government is gonna do something similar to what they've done to farmers in the past. And they're probably gonna end up paying drillers not to do anything. Wow. Now this has happened in the past with farmers to where the government pays a farmer to not plant anything on their land. Wow! And it's for their design to, to control you know prices and supply and demand of what's needed. And this is almost unheard of But in order to have a coordinated action between a lot of these OPEC countries, including non-OPEC countries like the U.S., you're going to have to incentivize these private enterprises to go along with this. Right. So I think what it means at the end of the day for listeners and consumers of, say, gasoline, short term, I think the prices are going to remain subdued. But as we go back to whatever the new normal looks like and you start to have consumption of these products we will draw down this this surplus and prices then will slowly begin to recover it's the same exact thing what happened after 07 08 and 09 prices cratered supply came off demand came back prices shot right back up several years later right so you know they're working the system But I would not expect long-term these prices to remain this low for several years. I think that's unrealistic, especially given how low prices are. The the joke uh, that a lot of oil traders will say, the cure for low oil prices is low oil prices. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're going to have a lot less people at a certain point drilling. And then when that supply comes out of the market, you're going to have the price go up. Right. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um.
1: No, Another headlines: uh, The first wave of stimulus checks were deposited into people's bank accounts this week. So, if you haven't checked already, check your check your uh, banking app on your phone to see if that has hit your account yet. Uh, Aaron in our office actually said that he heard of bank apps like crashing and not working yesterday because I so actually many heard that because so
2: many people were checking,
1: We're them. trying to access them. So, hopefully, that's ironed out. But if you haven't checked, give that a check, and it should be in there. Um, you know, either. It already is in there. or It will be over the next couple of days if you do qualify to get one. Yep. Um, and then the word is that the IRS is creating a tracking tool called Get My Payment that is scheduled to launch tomorrow, to my understanding, where people can track the status of their stimulus check and update direct deposit information if they need to, if they change banks or change an address if they need to do that.
2: Yeah, I think coming out of this, Mark, I could envision that a part of the uh, filing process, whether it's old school paper, or what a lot of people do online filing, they're going to have this information a part of it. And I think that they're not going to make this mistake again, by not maintaining a database that if we go through a similar economic shock at some point in the future. I think they're going to be a lot more prepared.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, whether it's closing a bank account or moving to a new address, it's just like this stuff needs to be updated, updated and documented for times like this. But all in all, positive news that, that people are finally starting to to see this money get into their pockets. And I hope people, you know, are spending it, uh, you know, I shouldn't say spending it wisely, but I hope you know you you read articles about what people are doing with their stimulus checks, and obviously all of the stuff that's we hear get the more outlandish attention, stuff. yeah, is yeah. the outlandish stuff. But yeah, but hopefully
2: this is this is a really really good thing for most people. Um, case counts. Yes, I got a couple things, Mark. So listeners, I want to bring you up to speed on uh, COVID case counts and the curve. Now, I will say this: they continue to come in better than the models have forecasted. So I'm going to give you a comparison. On April 6th, the John Hopkins model was forecasting total confirmed cases, that includes those who have recovered, to be 2.263 million. So let's call it Mm 2.26. Now, they forecasted that's what it would be on April 12th. So as a reminder, on April 6th, this is what they forecasted for April 12th. Fast forward to April 12th, the figure came in at 1.852 million. Total deaths were projected to be 138,000. As of April 12th, they came in 114,000. Very, very encouraging. So in essence, the model is being extremely conservative, and the hard data continues to come in and surprise.
1: Yeah, and that's a good thing, too. In addition, which this is kind of just a head scratcher for me, but they are, in some states, they're starting to count the case count number. With people that just have symptoms that haven't been tested yet, correct. I've heard that, and never will get tested, right? And they're they're being counted as a part of these numbers. So if they're still even with that coming down, you know,
2: they're we're under the curve. It's encouraging, very yeah. encouraging. So another couple of things I'll throw out there regarding COVID cases and the hardest hit area in the U.S., New York. Here are some figures as of April thirteenth from Governor Cuomo. Okay. Change in total hospitalized grew by only 85. On April 6th, that figure was 529, okay? So again, change in hospitalizations. Net change in um, incubations, so uh, ventilators, was down by 21 individuals on April 13th. That figure was in the positive 300 range a day two weeks ago. You are seeing progress. The reason I think this is important, Mark, for listeners to hear is I do do think it provides credence and legitimacy that we can phase in normal beginning in early May. Now, I heard last night that the White House is formally releasing those plans at the press conference this evening. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage listeners um, to keep your ear to the ground because that's going to be important.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in what they're going to have to say.
2: i got a couple more things. So markets continue to stabilize in general. As of last Thursday, the close, which would be, of course, April 9th, the S&P 500 index is up approximately 25% from its March 23rd market bottom. So, Mark, that's still down 18% at that time from its 52-week high that it made on or around February 19th, right? Yeah. So here's the note I want to have for listeners, and then I'll let you expand upon this if you wish. I want to say that there's still risk that we could test or even make a new low in the coming weeks. You know, we're not out of the woods yet, just in our opinion, though the data in the news continues to slowly improve. So anything you want to add to that? Yeah,
1: I just think that it's important to to point out that no one knows which way this thing's going to go. You know, we could just have another straight march up back to all time highs. And, you know, people are going to be more comfortable again, or the market is going to make people just comfortable enough to where they think we're out of the woods. And then, you know, we get hit with another wave of this selling pressure and then take out the lows or at least retest the lows. And I think it's just important for people to understand is, no one knows which way you're gonna go. You just have to maintain Especially in the
2: short term. Especially in the short term. I'm more I'm more optimistic and I have a lot more confidence yeah, was, in my
1: opinion, multiple months. Right right, 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 right. I was talking about short term. Oh, yeah. The next couple of weeks, the next month. You know, no one really knows. So I think you just have to stay prudent and follow your plan. And there's nothing really else that anyone can do to You know, to try to guess which way this this thing
2: is going to go from here. You know, and as a reminder for listeners, if 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 you're if if you're ultra concerned about what the markets are going to do over the next two, three, four weeks, you're probably too aggressive. Yeah. Or you know, your your goals and objectives need to be properly in line with the portfolio. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, The other thing I want to throw out there is, you know, Mark and I, listeners, we we track a lot of metrics um, and a lot of indices in the market, and. And one that um, is kind of interesting for us to watch is something called uh, the VIX or the volatility index. And right now, it's still abnormally high. Has it come down over over the past couple of weeks since March 23rd? Absolutely. I mean, it it surpassed highs it made during the great financial crisis temporarily, but it's still way too high. Mm -hmm. And that indicates to us that the market is telling us we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah. Even though we are seeing the data, prices, case counts improve, I, I can't sit here and give the all clear at this time. No, no, I can't either. And I don't think anyone's going to be able to, at least for the next couple of weeks, uh, next couple of months. So I think the message for our listeners, Mark, is they got to stay patient. They're going to continue to see volatility down and up. Mm-hmm. And that's just where we're still at in this cycle. Right. Exactly. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I have a point about you know recessions ending and market, markets bottoming in a little bit. So hopefully Excellent. That'll be good for listeners. some
2: clarity. That'll be good. Last thing I got for you, sir, is a banking system update. So uh, listeners, Federal Reserve has started to purchase high-yield bonds. This will help further stabilize the financial system. What does that mean? Okay. This is somewhat unprecedented. So um, in prior economic shocks... The Fed has purchased what we would call investment grade corporate debt. They've done that. Okay. And so, to provide liquidity to the markets, to keep credit markets functioning properly. That's, that's right. Like a thing. They, they want to they have orderly, you know, buy and selling, orderly price discovery. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that a couple podcasts ago. Yeah, But um, this time around, I think they learned a lot of cues from 07, 08, and 09. And they're going in there and they're uh, trying to provide liquidity, Mark, to companies that are what we call high yield, which is below investment grade for a bond to be investment grade. That means that a bank can invest its reserves into that bond. Okay, Mm -hmm. so they're going outside that level of high level of credit quality and they're going down to some of the lower tiers to provide liquidity to the system. And, I, and I, I'm an advocate for this move, because I think when you look at the devastation it caused uh, within interest rates that these companies would have to pay if they didn't have this type of liquidity, it, it could be catastrophic and linger multiple quarters down the road, even after we go back to the new normal. Right, exactly. And then I'll,
1: there's a lot of people out there pounding the table saying, just let these companies fail. So you get all these management teams out of there that haven't been doing their job over the past X amount of years. But you have to remember then what happens to all the employees? You know, they don't continue to get paid, then they have to you know, go find a new job. So I think it's a lot more complicated of an issue than just saying, hey, just let these these companies fail. I absolutely agree. Um, And I think for people to wrap their head around it between, uh, you know, investment grade and uh, high yield or junk bonds, think of it as, you know, your own personal FICO score that if you have an 800- FICO score your investment grade and you can get more credit than someone who has a 500 FICO score It's the same thing it works for investment grade bonds and high yield bonds high yield would be considered someone with you know for example a 500 credit score yeah for example yeah
2: exactly yeah that's the updates I have for listeners this week, Mark. I'm going to send okay. it back to you to uh, launch off with uh, tweets, research, and articles that caught our eye this week.
1: Yeah. So i um, kind of going on the same thing that I was just talking about, about people saying you need to let these companies just fail and go bankrupt. There's a lot more issues with that than it seems at first. It seems like a good idea. It sounds like a good idea, but there's a lot more to it. Okay. So... And a lot of this discussion has surrounded private equity firms and billionaires getting bailed out. And there was a good article written in Vanity Fair last week by Bethany McLean, and it's titled Too Big to Fail, COVID-19 Edition, How Private Equity is Winning the Coronavirus Crisis. So I just wanted to read a quote from this article because I don't really think people understand how intertwined private equity is with our economy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Bethany says this, well, great private fortunes such as that of Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman, whose net worth is $17.5 billion, and Apollo's Leon Black, whose net worth is $7.5 billion. those two companies are private equity firms for listeners, um, they have made uh, from private equities march through the world, its losses to a remarkable degree will all belong to us. So even though they've made all this money from private equity, the rest of us are going to feel it if their their firms fail and can't provide support to these companies that they invest in. That's because some of the major investors in private equity funds are public pension plans. At Blackstone, roughly one third of the firm's money comes from retirement plans set up to provide for over 30 million working class Americans, according to someone with knowledge of its portfolio. So if Blackstone's investments crater, the teachers, firefighters, and healthcare workers who are counting on those investments to generate the returns necessary to pay their pensions will suffer. Think of private equity firms as the banks of the coronavirus or corona crisis. They are, for better or worse,
2: too big to fail. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, you again, I keep want to go back to 07, 08, and 09 and look at the mistakes that were made, and we got to learn from them. And it's easy to sit there and say, you know, that, you know, these big private equity managers should be the ones taking it on the chin. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's not realistic because we are in a system, a financial system where everything is related. And if you start to have a lot of private equity firms, their investments go under pension funds, aren't going to be able to keep sending these checks. I mean, and they're going to they're gonna be really hard-pressed to do that. Right. And they're already underfunded in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no different for, in my opinion, with what the Fed's doing with um, the bond system, you know, high-yield investment grade. They had to provide liquidity for that. And so really, at the end of the day, their assistance is more liquidity-based, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Because, you know, people freeze up on wanting to invest any money because of the uncertainty and when you have that demand pulled out of the system prices just crater.
1: Yeah. Right? And I think everyone's going to be like, "Well, you know, public punch pension funds shouldn't be investing in private equity funds in the first place." And that's neither here nor there because they have and this is the problem right now. Yeah. So <laughs> it doesn't help to have that discussion maybe going forward it can, but right now we need to figure out this
2: problem. Yes. So, so I mean, another, another analogy I want to give you is how do you disseminate Mark between a, uh, um, payroll protection, uh, program loan to a company, and I'm going to give you two different restaurant chains. Okay. What is the difference to providing that to say a fast food chain, fictitiously pick one. Okay. Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're a franchisee and you own 30 Taco Bells. And if you get the grant from the SBA, that gives you two and a half months of your payroll cost, that if you don't reduce headcount by the end of June, that would be forgiven. Right now, I think most people would look at that and say, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. We got to take care of the Taco Bell workers. There's been a lot of upheaval the last couple of days, because people found out that I believe it was Ruth Chris, a high end steakhouse, got 20 million from the SBA loan. And people are not okay with that. Mm -hmm. Because that's a high end steakhouse but they tend to forget what the the goal of the PPP is to allow people to stay on payroll until we reopen and get back to normal right and if Ruth Chris and its shareholders don't have that money they don't have that cash flow they're going to furlough those people they won't get paid and to me there's no difference if it's Taco Bell or it's Ruth Chris but there's a lot of people that do,
1: yeah, and it's for. I think the problem is that people just anchor to the the dollar figure, right? That the more assistance is given, it's like, well, we need to take a look at that, rather than if it's just you know a hundred thousand dollars for a smaller restaurant or a smaller business. But I think the goal of the PPP is for people to pay their employees as they have been, as business is normal. Right? That's right. to keep that's things to try to it. keep things as normal as possible and that you know that's different from business to business but you can't just throw a blanket statement and say hey you know Ruth Chris you only get a hundred thousand because Taco Bell only gets a hundred thousand so that's yeah, not going to cut it that's it, gonna it is
2: because in my opinion that's picking winners and losers and it's not like
1: Ruth Chris is gonna Pocket this money. (laughs) You know, it's like, if they use it it for payroll, they have to pay it back. Exactly. So they're going to do everything they can and abide by the rules to make sure that this
2: money is going where it is intended to be going, which is the employees. Yeah. And in, in coming back to the article and what you're insinuating, you know, our financial system is so integrated and so complex that if you start to take certain key pieces from the foundation, that's when you have the domino effect of. A lot of the monetary system freezing up back in 07, 08, and 09. Mm -hmm. And I'll say it again. I am happy with the Federal Reserve's response up to this point. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But you know what they're doing this time? They're being proactive, and they're trying to adapt to the situation. And really, at the end of the day, that's all we can ask.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Again, I just think, you know, if everyone's just like, let all these private equity firms fail. It's just like that that is going to then we would structurally have a problem in the financial system if that happened.
2: Yeah. And real quick, before we move on, just briefly for listeners, just to make sure everyone understands the definition of private equity. Mm-hmm. So these large institutions, listeners, let's use pension funds. Let's use um, Ohio police and fire. Um, I don't know for sure if they have private equity, but let's just speculate that they do. Okay. Okay. So they make an investment, they hire a manager, and we'll use Black uh, Blackstone as an example. Okay. They give X amount of money to Blackstone. Blackstone pulls that money that they've raised from other institutions. And then they go out there and they'll buy whole companies. Okay. They could do other things, but that's the main thing. Yeah. So think of a small or medium-sized business. Sometimes they could be large. And They, the people who have pulled this money together, they own the whole company. So then they're able then to share part of their earnings, i.e. dividends, just with that pool of investors. Mm -hmm. And then the goal is at a certain point down the road, they might take that company public again and have what we would call a liquidity event. And managers like Blackstone are compensated on the value and performance of the investments that they make. Yeah. Okay? Yeah.
1: So just want to maybe throw that out there. As yeah, a little thank bit of- you. Yeah, for a lot of people that don't know what private equity is. But yeah, yeah. thank you. I'll send it back to you. Um, the other thing I had was that ClearBridge uh, Investments came out with a PowerPoint presentation called The Anatomy of a Recession, What to Look for and Where We're Headed. And it had some good slides in there that kind of caught my eye. So we'll link to this PowerPoint in our show notes. And this first slide is slide 17 for those people um, who do go and check this out. And it's the average length of time that the market bottoms before the recession officially ends. And according to ClearBridge, markets bottom on average three months before recessions end. So this I just thought was interesting because it goes back to our point we've been making the past couple of weeks that markets bottom before news starts to get better. Correct, sir. The stock market is not the economy. The economy is not the stock market. Are they related? Yes, but they're not the same thing. Correct, sir. Okay, so I won't harp on that anymore.
2: No, that's great. And then real quick for listeners, how you're going to get this data um, is you go to uh, Mm JessupWealthManagement.com, you hover over the podcast tab, and you're going to see the show notes. Yes. And and, and Mark put a link on this uh, on the site already so you can um, download this presentation. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. And then last slide I wanted to mention from this was slide 58, and this one outlines that investors who missed the 10 best days in a given decade in the stock market would have seen 70% lower returns over the course of that decade on average. That's a big, big statement. Yeah, and that's huge. That's it, it, repeat it for listeners. Um, investors who missed the best 10 days in a given decade in the stock market would have seen 70% lower returns over the course of that decade on average. That's huge. Huge. And 28% of the best days took place in the first two months of a bull market. This reiterates, I think, Matt, that timing the market is extremely, extremely
2: difficult. I want to be careful I don't get on my soapbox, but I mm-hmm. do know that there's people out there listening that might have went, say, completely to cash at some point over the past two months. And, you know, for those individuals, what's now the toughest decision they have to make? When do I get back in? That's right. And the problem psychologically that this affects people is you tend to want to get back in when the con- when the coast is completely clear. But guess what? The stock market's pretty efficient at pricing this stuff in. Yeah. And by the time it feels comfortable, I would say, in my opinion, statistically, a lot of these people are going to end up buying back in at higher prices. Mm -hmm. And or like what we were just talking about, that they think because, you know, we've had a
1: strong couple of weeks here in the market off the lows, they think it's the all clear and then they throw everything back
2: in and then they get shot right back down to the lows that we had on March 23rd. So listeners, uh, Mark and I are teeing up an extremely special guest on the podcast, uh, coming up. Um, it is a, uh, clinical psychologist. Um, her resume is a lot more than that. And I'll be very curious to kind of dive into the psychology side of how, um, our mindsets are affected during, um, extreme times like we've had the past two months. Yeah. So I think listeners will get just as we will a really good, Um, summary of kind of how it affects us mentally
1: yeah I'm excited for that that's going to be a good one Um, you have a note before we move on to um, the financial planning topic of the week I do not this week. I'm
2: going to pass. There's just this, um, the market's just so fluid right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm going to pass. I'll let you go to the financial planning topic of the week. Okay.
1: Um, So each year, uh, JP Morgan comes out with a guide to retirements presentation, and their 2020 edition was just released, which we're also, again, going to link to in our show notes. So jessupwealthmanagement.com. Uh, hover over the podcast tab and click on the show notes tab, and then you'll be able to download this presentation as well. So I think JP Morgan does a really good job here, Matt, breaking down retirement stats for people to understand. So I encourage everyone to go check out this full presentation at some point. Um, But I'm just going to cover a few slides that really kind of caught my eye. Excellent. Excellent. So the first slide, if people are going to be following along and going through this, uh, is slide number three, and it's the retirement equation. And it's kind of a matrix broken down into three different options. Is One is total control, one is some control, and the other is out of your control. So JP Morgan lists of things that you're in total control of are your sp- saving versus spending and your asset allocation. The things you have some control over are employment earnings and duration and longevity. And out of your control are market returns and policy regarding taxation, savings, and benefits. So again, I won't say much more than that, but I don't want to keep pounding the table on it, but focus on what you can control in these times. Um, the next is slide five, and it's life expectancy probabilities. So in 2018, um, at age 65, women, uh, the average life expectancy for women is about 85 and a half and about 83 for men. Okay. Um, As we all know, Matt, average life expectancy continues to increase um, and I think is going to continue to do so. So I think people need to have a realistic expectation that the probability of living 30 years past your retirement date is very possible. Yes. Very possible. Um, And I think this is a reason why most people can't afford to invest a majority of their portfolios into conservative investments like all fixed income, because that's not going to last you 30 years. You know, we've gone over this several times and provided stats on this, that you need to, you know, see that it's a possibility that you live until you're 95 or even 100. That's right. So, Um, They have a really good chart and they separate it between women and men and their probabilities of living to certain ages. And then they also have a a column that as a couple, and that's defined as at least one person living to a specific age. So there is a 50% chance that one person in that marriage will live until they're 90 years old. So I thought that was pretty high. That's high. And there's a twenty percent chance that someone's going to live till
2: ninety-five. Still high, in my my opinion. That's so again, great.
1: I think that just this just reiterates that you once you retire, you can't afford just to put your money in cash or put it into bonds because that's not going to last for most people.
2: Especially if we see some inflation at some point. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Which inevitably we will. Especially with the binge money printing that <laughs> we're on, going right now. on right now, that we'll have to deal with that at some point. Yeah. Um, The next is slide number 10, and they talk about maximizing social security benefits here. And um, they have a little planning opportunity box that reads this. Delaying benefits means increased social security income later in life, but your portfolio may need to bridge the gap and provide income until delayed benefits are received. So slide number 10, Matt, kind of shows the break-even age for the average earner, um, in terms of when is the best time to take social security. So these are the numbers that they have. okay? If you live until at least age 76, then from a number standpoint, it makes sense to wait to take social Security at your full retirement age rather than taking it early at 62. And at 62 years old, the average male has 73% chance to live until 76 the average female has an 81% chance to live until age 76. Pretty good stats. Yeah, pretty good stats. So I think if you look at the numbers, again, if you can afford to do it, it makes sense to wait until your full retirement age to take your Social Security benefit rather than taking it early at 62. Okay. If you live um, until at least 80 years old, it makes sense to delay taking Social Security until age 70 rather than your full retirement age. At age 62, the average male has a 61% chance to live until age 80, and the average female has a 71% chance to live until age 80. So, again, still, still pretty good. Pretty good odds. Yeah. So, if you can do it to maximize your Social Security benefit, the option clearly is waiting until age 70, but I know that people sometimes don't have that option,
2: right? Yeah. So what I want to throw out to listeners is <clears throat> I'm going to brag a little bit about our prayer planner we have in house. Uh, we have a gentleman on staff listeners. His name's Aaron Kramer. Um, Aaron is, um, you know, extremely knowledgeable when it comes to uh, helping advise clients on when's the best time to take social security. And there's a lot of factors involved. Everything from You know your family history your current health today your current financial situation you know there's a lot that goes into that recommendation that aaron ends up making so listeners i want to encourage you that if you have any interest in uh, having a conversation with aaron you can do so you can call our office or you can email aaron at aaron at jessupwealthmanagement.com you know he's willing to kind of walk you through uh, and help uh, better advise you on Some potential forecasting of when to take Social Security.
1: Yeah, yeah, he does a great job with that. Um, Next is slide 18, and it's the benefit of saving and investing early. So um, they give four different examples of people investing $200 per month uh, monthly. Okay, so this is saved and invested monthly. So they have consistent Chloe who invests from age 25 to 65 earning 6% and investing $200 per month. The ending portfolio value is $393,700 for consistent Chloe. For late Layla, she invests from age 35 to 65, earning a 6% return, $200 a month. Her ending balance at age 65 is $201,000. Then we have Quitter Quincy, who invests from ages 25 to 35, $200 a month, earning 6%. Her ending balance is $192,000. Okay. And then you have Nervous Noah, who saves from age 25 to 65 in cash, earning 2% per year. And Nervous Noah ends up with $148,000 at the end uh, or by the time he turns 65. So I think that's pretty clear of over a long time horizon, what you need to do consistently to have more money by the time you're 65 or by the time you're ready to retire.
2: Yeah. I mean, getting down to brass tacks, I mean, what is the trade-off for earning those types of returns? And they illustrated 6% in this example. Mm -hmm. The trade-off is you have to endure the past two months. You have to endure fourth quarter of 2018. Mm -hmm. You have to endure those, those time periods. However when you look at from point A to point B, you're going to look back and have a superior rate of return than over those extended periods of time just sitting in cash. Mm -hmm. And 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 this is what this is illustrating. Yeah, exactly. And
1: if you do a good enough job, then
2: you can afford to have a larger portion
1: at that time of your assets in fixed income or allocated to cash because you did such a good job up until that point saving. Yeah, it's not all or nothing. It's not 100% stock or 100% bonds. Right, right. So um, the next thing is kind of pivoting to healthcare. So on uh, slide twenty-seven, they show healthcare costs for retirees before age sixty-five. Um, so this is for people who want to retire, you know, before, before age sixty-five they, or retire before Medicare early. kicks in. Right. Exactly. So when we say retire early, we say you know before, before age sixty five. Yeah. So I wanted to break down costs for someone that you know if you retire, let's say. Sixty-two, you have to gap three years of health insurance coverage until you are eligible for Medicare. So, I wanted to kind of show people what the average costs are that in the marketplace right now. All right. So, in twenty twenty, the silver plan, which covers about seventy percent of cost for all enrollees in this plan, for someone who is not a smoker and age sixty-four, the nationwide average is a little more than fourteen hundred bucks per person per month. Got it. That's not cheap. No, that is not cheap. And again, this stuff varies based on where you live and from state to state. So on slide 27, JP Morgan has a link to a calculator that people can go and get more accurate costs for themselves based on where they live in the country. So I encourage people to do that if they have questions. Uh, The bronze plan, Matt, covers about 60% of all costs for enrollees in the plan and the nationwide average for the Ron's plan is about 1100 per month. So again, if you're one of those people that are in the camp that want to retire before age 65, this needs to be included in your budget, right? Yep. Um, So piggybacking off of that on slide 28, um, obviously, you know, as you get older, the cost is going to increase. Okay. So I wanted to throw out the nationwide averages for people at different ages. Uh, for going out and getting, you know, a health insurance plan in the marketplace if they retire early. So say you're really aggressive and you retire at age 50 and you need to gap 15 years before you're eligible for Medicare, the uh, estimated or the national average of the cost for the silver plan is $837 per month. Per person. Per person. Age, six, age 55 is, again, um, closer to $1,100 per month. Age 60, 1200 per month, and age 64, a little more than 1400 per month. So as you get older, the more and more expensive it becomes. Yep. So moving on from uh, health insurance, Matt, uh, back to long-term retirement savings. So on page, or excuse me, slide 45, uh, J.P. Morgan kind of highlights a flow chart of how to start saving or investing if you're new to this. So I've kind of mentioned something similar like this uh, before, just in a slightly different order. Mm -hmm. But if you're new and you're like, where do I start? Where do I start? This is a good chart to kind of show you how to go through that process. Got it. So they suggest starting uh, with an emergency reserve. And we need this now more than ever of people saving to have at least three to six months of living expenses before doing anything else. And that's just put into a high yield savings account or an online bank, something that you can access if you need it for emergencies. Second is uh, investing in a health savings account if you're eligible for a match. So you have to have a high or be a part of a high deductible health health uh, plan, excuse me, to have a health savings account. The third is define contribution savings to maximize your employer match. So if you have a 401k through your employer, do enough to get the full match. Absolutely. Uh, Four, uh, start making additional payments on higher interest rate loans. So things like credit cards or student loans with interest rates greater than 6%. Yep. Number five is going back to the HSA and continuing to contribute to that. Number six is going back to the 401k or the defined contribution savings and contribute up to your maximum amount there. And then number seven, go back and do additional payments on the lower interest loans. So loans that have, uh, you know, student loans with interest rates less than 6%. If you're all good there, open up an IRA because you can defer 6000 or $7,000 per year based on your age. Correct. And if you still have more money to save from there, open a taxable account.
2: And so for listeners, a taxable account is what we would call like a brokerage account. Think of it as a checking account at the bank, but only that uh, taxable account can invest in stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies. And so it's kind of the same, you know right. Taxation. Right. Exactly. So yeah. I think, and again, it th- this doesn't have
1: to be perfect. You can switch around the 401k with the HSA, or if you don't have an HSA, then skip it and go right to the 401k, but it's a good this point. just it it's it provides a good people point. a flow chart of yeah. how to go about, about starting or, and doing this. So I really, really encourage people to go, um, check this out. Slide 45. Um, next is slide 47. And it talks about the benefits of auto escalation. So what I what I mean by auto-escalation, Matt, is that you can have, you know, say you make hundred thousand dollars per year and you contribute ten percent of your pay. That's ten thousand dollars per year. Got it. Keeping that static would mean that as you get pay raises, you keep the contribution at ten thousand dollars. When I talk about auto escalation, I mean keep the ten percent of your pay. So If you get a raise and you make $200,000 now, then contribute $20,000, okay? So this highlights the difference between that. So here are the model assumptions, that the start age is 25, retirement age is 65, starting wages are $50,000, wage growth is 2%, and assumed annual employer match of a 50% contribution capped at 3%. Investment returns are 6%. So Super Sam starts and stays at 10% contribution from 25 to 65. His ending portfolio value is a little more than $1.4 million. Escalating Ethan starts at 3% contribution, increasing 1% annually until capping his contributions at 10% of his pay. His ending portfolio is $1.26 million. Stubborn Sarah starts and stays at 3% contribution from 25 to 65. And Stubborn Sarah ends with $487,000.
2: You know, the thing I like about this illustration for listeners is we've talked about our plus 1% uh, rule and typically capping that at 15. If you look at escalating, Ethan, if, if you, know, you start at 3%, <clears throat> increase that 1% annually and you take that cap out to 15%, that is the strategy I love for people to utilize. Yeah, Because it is a tall order to go to somebody who's not currently budgeting retirement savings, and to sit there and say, I need you to start at 10%. I yeah. know that's a tall order. Yeah, But let's take it to the next level. Let's start at one, two, three percent, but then I'm gonna challenge that individual every 12 months to raise it by 1%. Right. And the next thing you know, we're gonna be in the escalating Ethan category but a little bit better. Instead of capping it at 10, you cap it at 15. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, The last thing on page uh, 48,
1: it talks about the toxic effect of loans and withdrawals. So I won't go into it too much, but just with their model that they did here with their hypothetical simulation, um, people with a 401k loan average Uh, 26% less in ending portfolio value at 65 than you would have
2: had if you didn't take a 401k loan. This is a big one because a lot of people say, well, Matt, I'm going to take the loan. I'm just paying myself back. Mm -hmm. That's fine and dandy. But what you got to realize is you're losing out on the compounding effect of having that money in the market. Right. Which is magical. It's big. So when you take this example on, on slide 48 here, you know, that's a difference of heck, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars you know and it's not a small small amount of money but i paid myself back it doesn't matter it's not invested in the market that's that's the message that listeners have to realize yeah, right? so again
1: unless it's ultimately a last resort type of thing we encourage people to
2: stay away from 401k loans yep
1: no questions this week so anything before we wrap up here matt
2: No. Um, Again, you know, we had an unemployment, uh, I'm sorry, initial jobless claims this morning, which were a little bit over uh, 5 million uh, in number that was expected. I believe the average estimate was five and a half. It came in at like 5.2 and some change. You know, ultimately, we're not out of the woods yet. Continue to expect volatility. Um, I would encourage listeners to listen to the um, Trump administration's presentation about phasing in uh, return to normal life, um, and so, you know, I'm encouraged uh, and hopeful that we are in the latter innings of this quarantine. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, with that being said, we'll call it a week
1: here and we will be back with you next week. uh, I believe with, um, our guest on the podcast that I think will be very interesting. So make sure you tune into that. I think that's scheduled as of right now for next Friday. Correct. Mark. So it won't be on Thursday. Um, it should be released midday on Friday. So uh, with that being said, thanks for tuning in again to the 43rd episode of the independent advisors podcast. Everyone have a safe and wonderful weekend.
2: Take care.
0: Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.